Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, September 16th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Sometime today, I believe, Abe, is that right? We should have up the contents of our October issue. Uh, hopefully, by the time you hear this, we'll have at least some of it, if not all of it. Um, it's a it's a kind of an unusual issue because we have two mammoth pieces anchoring the issue one by our old friend adam j white uh it's called god save this honorable court and we can too and its subject is the efforts by democrats and liberals to delegitimize the supreme court while they speak about the dangers and threats to democracy from the delegitimization of the executive branch on the part of of, of trumpians a very important piece Adam will be on the podcast next week to talk about it. And we have uh, a piece by a professor at Yeshiva University named Moshe Krakowski about the uh, New York Times and its relentless effort to slander, impugn, and defame uh, Yeshiva education in New York City and New York State. Uh, uh, Krakowski is a academic expert in what is known as Haredi education, the education by the ultra-Orthodox of their kids. Um, It is his academic field of study. Nobody knows more about it than he does. And he takes a two by four to the New York Times in a systematic and comprehensive way, calling into question not only the fact pattern that that New York Times attempted to establish, (laughs) but the hundreds-year-old tradition of uh, uh, the the Jewish people who are a part and parcel of this effort to delegitimize or to call into question the validity of of this kind of religious uh, education of their fellow Jews, that this is a a deep well uh, in the Jewish community internal civil war against uh, people who are more secular against people who are uh, holding up the faith. So um, we're very proud of these two pieces. Um, go to commentary.org to read them. Go and subscribe <coughs> to commentary so you can read them and other glories like uh, Tevi Troy's piece on the uh, CDC supposed effort to reform itself in the wake of COVID, which is no reform and will be of no help. And uh, our friend Jim Meggs on the uh, coming departure of Anthony Fauci and why his elevation to secular sainthood was a bad idea for him, a bad idea for uh, NEA, uh, the uh, National Institutes of Health, a bad idea for public health in general, and a bad idea for the United States, because this is not the way we are supposed to be thinking either about bureaucrats, bureaucracies, or the people who lead their efforts. Um, brilliant piece by Gary Saul Morrison of Northwestern University on the Soviet century and what parallels we can see to uh, Putin's behaviors today. Uh, Just a a really great issue. We're very proud of it. And go to commentary.org. If you're not a subscriber, subscribe so you can read all the contents because if you click on a couple things, you're going to hit our paywall. Stop hitting our paywall. Subscribe. That's one way to also support this podcast. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor and Author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Before we get to day two, it's not really day two because this is an ongoing thing of the uh, great... A Republican troll of liberal hypocrisy in the form of uh, <clears throat> the specific uh, transfer of illegal immigrants from uh, from border states to non-border states. Uh, I want to I want to uh, talk about uh, the New York Times's latest poll. Uh, it's 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 big uh, poll of registered voters. Um, which confirms in their own terms, you know, uh, the general democratic surge over the last two months. Um, they have the generic ballot that is, will you vote for a Democrat or Republican at two percentage points in Democrats favor 46 
to 44. Um, in July, they actually had the Democrats up 1.45 to 44. So they're not showing a surge there generically. What they are showing, and this is why I think it's so interesting, what they're showing is movement inside specific bodies of opinion. And I've here we go. So, for example, from July to September, last time they took this poll, Democrats saying they think the United States is on the wrong tra right track have gone from 27% to 50%. Independents have gone from 9% to 27%. Republicans, no change. Percentage who say they approve of Biden's job performance, either strongly or somewhat. Democrats were at 70%. In July, now at 83%. Independents, 25%, now at 39%. Republicans have dropped from eight to four. Okay, so this is basically a snapshot picture of what we have been seeing going on, which is the coming home effect. That is, uh, Democrats now are now, are now uh, much more in Biden's camp than they were two months ago before, which was at, that would be after the Dobbs decision, but before... Um, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the general sort of newly aggressive efforts to go at Trump and the rise, the return of Trump to the center of the American political conversation. And this is really vitally key to any Democratic hopes of retaining the Senate in particular, and even if you think it's possible for them to keep the House. Obviously, Democrats have to be enthusiastic, not, not only about voting, but feeling good about being Democrats in general. And that's, I think, what the president's job performance number <clears throat> jump of 13% in this poll indicates. But I want to talk about what's funny here, which is that people now, the polls are, some of these questions don't measure what they seem to measure. So the right track, wrong track poll. Okay. Democrats saying 27% in July that we're on the right track and then 50% saying that we're on the right track. They're not talking about whether we're on the right track or not. Clearly not, because on the one hand, they must think that we're on a terribly wrong track in order to be angry. Like the country is on the wrong track. We've just overturned Dobbs. They don't want us to overturn Dobbs. Trump is at the center of the political conversation. They don't want Trump to be at the center of the political conversation so basically now, even when people answer, even when ordinary people answer poll questions, they're answering them in a kind of meta way. Meta way. It's like, if Democrats are less mad because the country is in better shape, then, then on the one hand, yeah, that they should be in a good mood and that should be, it's better for them than otherwise. But on the other hand, all, all Biden is trying to do is get them angry so that they'll go to the polls angry and vote angry at, 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 at Republicans. This poll so, seems to, seems to, uh, I don't want to say invalidate, but sort of contradict itself. Um, Cause it essentially asks without saying as much, are you lying to me? And they get a lot of voters who say yes. In contrast, I'm reading from the New York times writer. Voters trust Republicans more on the economy by a 14 point margin, 52 to 38 percent. And they say that economic issues will matter more to their, to their vote than do societal issues by 18 percent. Moving on, Republicans would lead by six percentage points in the race for Congress if they could merely win over the voters who say they agree with the GOP most on the economy. So wait a minute. Six percent more voters agree with in the generic ballot. Republicans would be lead by six points if the if if the public agreed with them on their economic message. The poll says that the public does agree with them on their economic message by fourteen points, and that it matters more to them by eighteen points. And yet, we're going to tell posters that this is all about abortion. They're lying. Well, does that mean that? Does it mean they're lying or or does it mean that in fact well, not lying telling you what you want to hear isn't lying? Well, I don't know. Or do, I, I'm just saying, does it? Yeah, mean I think it's weirder than that. I think it's more subtle than that. You know, it's like um, in social science, self-report measures are like the the weakest measures because people aren't the best assessors of their own actions and and feelings and whatnot. So I, I think it's more that sort of effect. I I, I think they have. One answer about their concerns, one answer about how they're voting, one answer about how they feel. But it, it, it's a it's a stew that sort of just, you know, 
the result is the result and, and they're not sure how they get there, but it's a, it's a sort of instinct. Right. I mean, it's hard to pull set levels of self-deception in the American public, but but as as a matter of human nature, Abe's absolutely right. I mean, you see this particularly in like uh, nutrition studies and like weight loss studies. People are like, I only ate 1200 calories. And then they actually monitor them with some other form of independent surveillance. They're like, no, you had 3000 calories. So so that that's actually such a deeply human thing. And, and there's no science to measure self-deception uh, quite yet and certainly not uh, among pollsters. I mean, so we have here a measure of the way people express their opinion when asked questions about it. And then these people are going to have to act or not act. Either they're going to have to vote or not vote, or they're going to have to vote Republican or Democrat if they vote. And so we actually have a couple of stages of remove from this result to the actual action. Will these people who are registered voters, and we don't really know how many registered voters will turn out to vote. Uh, the thought is that there will be astronomical turnout for a midterm election. Um, that I think means like around 60 to 65% of registered voters would actually come out to vote or something like that. I'm trying to think of the numbers or 65% of the people who vote. Well, let me put it this way. In 19, in, in 2018, Almost ninety percent of the people of the numbers of people who came out to vote in 2016 came out to vote. That we'd never seen that before, because I think 130 some odd million people came out to vote in 2016, and 118 million voted in the midterms. That that number ballooned in 2020 to more than 150 million people, 155 million people. If 90 percent of that number turns out right. That'll be 140 million people uh, voting in the midterms. And so we the registered voter screen, uh, screening for likely voters, uh, this is just a registered voter thing. So likely voters is usually where you want to go because you have to you do ask questions to try to make sure that people are going to turn out to vote. But if 140 million people vote, the distinction between the registered voter and the likely voter almost completely disappears. And so what we what we don't know is how these contradictions are going to express themselves at the polls. Um, if people, in an odd way, if people are more inclined to vote, period, and everybody is now becoming a midterm voter, in some sense, then they're going to be less engaged than the hysterical voter, right? Uh, and so they might be more inclined to vote based on if if they if they're not securely attached to their feelings here you know the economy is most important to them but they're mad about abortion they don't like trump at the center this and that but sort of it's like how they're feeling in the week before they turn out to vote is going to have a much bigger effect on who they vote for particularly you know in senate i don't know so i just think it's interesting because uh none of this makes logical sense as noah says and we're just we're we're staring down the barrel of a very very hard to understand electorate are they angry how are they again it gets back to this democratic number if they're energized to vote if they're moving toward the president if they're this or they're that why at the same time do they think the country is on the right track are they? Would that mean that they're voting affirmatively on the grounds that the country is on the right track and Democrats are that, doing a good job? John, you know you you made a point some weeks back that when the when voters respond these days that the the problem well one of their main concerns is jobs. They don't mean jobs; they mean the economy generally, right? Um, I think the country's on the right track means will you support your 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 Democrats? this coming right. election you know we, we, we you do you endorse what they are up to right so so we know two things one of which is there are more democrats than republicans you know, there just are numerically in the country there have been forever uh that number has shrunk considerably um Nominal Democrats, by the way, made up 44% of the electorate in 1980, and nominal Republicans made up 22% of the electorate in 1980, and Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter 50 to 40. 
So, you know, that the words Democrat and Republican, you know, the Democrats were larger and weaker in some sense uh, 40 years ago than they are now. And on the other hand, so they're now, I think, have a four or five point advantage. Some Sometimes it's measured as eight points. Um, but it's simply the fact that if you get everybody to turn out, that will benefit Democrats more than Republicans, simply because there are more Democrats than Republicans. And that this poll might indicate that that is going to happen. But again, what's their motivation for voting? Feeling re- relatively good about the state of the country, if that's a meaningful metric that they're going to then say, okay, well, I better stand online for an hour to vote. I don't know. I just, it's, it's all very confusing. And then I note that NACO, the New York times and uh, the polling team at the economist this morning, um, have both cautioned that if you assume a voting error, uh, if you assume polling error in 2022 that is comparable to polling errors in uh, 2016 and 2020, all of the nominal Democratic advantages that we're seeing in some of these polls and in the battleground polls evaporate. But even if you don't assume that advantage, Republicans are still on track to win at least a majority in the House, probably a healthy one, and are competitive in the Senate. Even if you assume that the polls are 100% correct. Right. We're going to pull Ron Johnson up the other day. That was not supposed to happen. And it's a Marquette poll, which is a Wisconsin-based university. They know their electorate. Marquette, Marquette, Marquette. Marquette Law. Yeah, I so I've been calling uh, him Marquette for entire life. I had no yeah. idea that it was Marquette. Yeah, Marquette. It's uh, he was a uh, he was a uh, uh, Catholic Somebody. priest who <laughs> I believe converted Native Americans. So maybe oh, that's got to change. Go. I think they're going to have to change the name of Marquette right. University. Um, but uh, yeah, so Ron Johnson's an interesting case because. Um, there's almost no path to Democrats keeping the Senate unless they can take the seat away from Ron Johnson. But then Let's yesterday we got a Warnock math. poll that shows Warnock up by a healthy margin. So there's really okay, impossible right. to. Okay, so here, here, here's here's how here's how this goes. So d- Democrats have a 50-50 advantage. Uh, there are these races that you know had Republicans nominated the most formidable candidates. Democrats would basically be, you know, looking to move offices to the less nice offices on uh, on the Senate side on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, uh, Arizona, uh, Georgia, obviously, uh, probably New Hampshire now, um, Pennsylvania, maybe. Uh, but it was very important to Democrats to win in. It is very important to Democrats to win in Wisconsin which is a Republican held seat because uh, then they immediately go from a 50, 50 Senate to a 51, 49 Senate absent any other changes. And then you have these other States where it is, where, where right now things are within the margin of error, right? Georgia, that's Warnock versus Walker, Walker, a bad candidate. Um, But in an atmosphere in which he should probably win, Republican candidate for governor is up five or six points. Um, and of course, Warnock only won in 2021, early 2021, uh, because of the Trump, the Trump don't go vote, you know, to show how angry you are uh, in the runoffs effect that, you know, kept 110,000 people from coming out. So that's uh, Georgia. So if Georgia, if Walker wins, uh, the that 5149 mar- margin in Democrats' favor that comes from winning the Republican seat away from in, in Wisconsin vanishes and it becomes 50-50. And then you have the race in North Carolina between Ted Budd and I can't even remember who the uh who the Democratic nominee is. Uh again, a race that I, I my guess is that the the polling there is um is off because this is these are the sorts of places where where the polling is off but so if bud were to win that's a republican seat so you basically that stays at par you're then still at 50 50. uh then you get to the southwest you have you have uh arizona which is blake masters versus the incumbent mark kelly and that 
supposedly is not looking good for masters but you can't rule you know he doesn't have money and uh, peter Thiel isn't paying for him and all of this but you know it's not like he's out of the game uh at all um that's still a that's still a, a race that it's very hard to call but if but if masters were to win then you're at 5149 republican and then you go to nevada which is the sitting senator uh catherine uh cortez masto versus adam laxalt uh that's the maybe the most purple state in the union so you can't really tell where that's that's going to go uh but he kind of should win and is apparently a reasonably decent candidate and she doesn't have that high a profile there and so if he were to win then you're at 5248 um and so the democratic we we've been in this kind of sugar high mood where it's like oh democrats are going to lose everywhere are going to win everywhere in the senate terrible candidates oh then you get to pennsylvania so assuming that uh which is a republican held seat assuming dr oz loses to john fetterman then you go back to 5149 and that's probably where we are absent surprising results in washington state and colorado both have both of which have democratic senators and very good republican candidates uh vying for those seats so you could have a surprise there that takes republicans to 52 48. but the more we talk about this i think the presumption has been in the the rcp not rcp the 538 predictor says that republicans only have a 30 percent chance to win the senate um which is you know surprising but as nate silver who runs 538 says 30 percent of things happen all the time like you can't look at that and say that means it's not going to happen you know aaron judge gets a hit one out of every three times at bat that's you're still terrified of uh, that means aaron judge is like a fantastic hitter and you might even get home runs in there as instead of the hits so you know I don't, I don't know it's like um we keep seeing these numbers and the republic the reason that it's also startling is that republicans should be galloping away with this that's i think the point it should be like where it was in 2010 when republicans at this point were up six or seven points in the generic ballot how is that for endless i didn't even say anything i don't think <laughs> i really said anything there i'm sorry uh but you know you could but everything i said is true smiley and o'day are really good candidates in colorado and um and washington um you're just very bullish on smiley i've seen no data to suggest that she's as competitive o'day is a sleeper race go go look at those commercials go that there's a big parents revolt in washington state there's a lot of silent majority stuff about what's going on in seattle I mean, you know, you you've seen nothing because there isn't that Seattle much is data. Thunderdome. So I mean, anyone can run yeah. against what what that city has become uh, under Democratic rule. Yeah, remember that Seattle is one of these uh, cities with uh, suburbs that dwarf the size of the city, and those people have to come in. I mean, around this time in 2010, less yeah. I decidedly remember being very invested in Dina Rossi's campaign because we had a lot of data to suggest that this was a competitive place i've seen more data out of oregon to suggest it's competitive in washington i know uh, data I, out of washington i hate to uh i hate to bring up dino uh, dino rossi is a tragic figure i mean in fact if anybody in if, if anybody in the 21st century can be said to have probably have lost because of voter fraud um, it was Dino Rossi and, you know, he ended up running like four times and all my, I mean, it's just, it's a very, very sad, very sad story for, for poor Dino Rossi. But um, I'm not invested in anybody. I'm just saying they're a surprise, right? The old, the surprises come there. That's all. Now, I don't know. These numbers don't suggest that there will be surprises. Waves cause surprises. If there is no Republican wave, then there probably won't be any surprises um that's the that's the nature of this whole discussion um but even without a wave even without surprises and all of that despite the fact that this you know uh, 538 number says that republicans only have a 29 percent 
a chance of winning the Senate based on polling and all this. There's a lot less polling than there used to be. Polling is very unreliable, as we know. And we are we find ourselves um, in a situation where if you just go systematically through the races and you don't presume that everything that people say on, you know, in mainstream media is true of the way the electorate feels about people like Herschel Walker, you still get to Republicans picking up the Senate. I mean, that's the weird part. It's like, if you go down the races, like Democrats have two pickup chances, you know, uh, they have, they have uh, Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Republicans have six or seven. Oh, in Wisconsin. I'm sorry. I meant Wisconsin because I don't think North Carolina is really a pickup chance. But let's say they have three pickup chances and Republicans have seven pickup chances. Um, they're just defending a lot more turf, Democrats, than Republicans. And all of these races, maybe with the exception of Pennsylvania, which, of course, is also a weird wild card because there is a there is a candidate in problematic health in Pennsylvania. Um, I was going to say there was one weird candidate and he's facing a wild candidate, but that's just, (laughs) they're both, they're both extremely uh, difficult candidates in their own ways. Right. All right. So, um, you know, we're talking here about employment in the Senate and uh, employment is a difficult subject. Employing people is very hard. When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. You can find out that, you know, somebody's complaining because somebody else doesn't have good hygiene on their team. You can find out that somebody hasn't told you the truth about some whatever. You, you better talk to Bambi, okay? Because Bambi will provide you with HR at a cost point, price point, that just you cannot possibly beat. Okay, you get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 a month, whereas an HR, full-time HR manager, uh, you know, that you hire to run your, to work in your business would be $80,000 a year or more. Bambi's available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. $99 a month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com. Bambi.com. Type in Commentary Magazine. And uh, I was just reading uh, this morning uh, that um, the uh, yield curve is about to invert. What does that mean? Well, you know what? I'm never sure what stuff like that means. I, I learn and then I forget. It essentially means that the, <clears throat> that the uh, uh, short-term interest rates uh, are, are higher than long-term interest rates. And it's usually the indication of a coming recession. You know what I do when I'm confused about stuff like this? Me personally, I contact my friend David Bonson, and uh, who runs an investment management firm, $4 billion under management, publishes these two great newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com, has written for us and uh, can really help explain things to me. Well, you know what? You also can take advantage of David Bonson, even if you don't have his phone number or his email address. Um, go to Bonson.com to understand what it is that David does, what he understands about the market, where he thinks his investors need to turn, uh, what kinds of decisions he's making for his investors in terms of uh, whether you 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 take risks or you go into stuff that's more dividend heavy. Um, that's B-A-H-N-S-E-N.com. Uh, David knows her, he speaks and, uh, has a very interesting and, uh, original perspective on macro and microeconomics. Um, and you can see it all there, uh, see what it, see why it is that his investors, uh, give him their money and, you know, think about what you might do, um, 
to advance your own economic interests with the kind of advice that he can provide. So that's David Bonson at Bonson.com. Um, okay, so uh, I'm just going to read you one quote from Twitter. Uh, reporters fanning out all over Martha's Vineyard to deal with the horror of the 50 uh, migrants, the illegal immigrants who got on a plane and were flown and got off in Martha's Vineyard, okay? A guy from uh, WCVB in, uh, I think, in Boston. Um, We just spoke with a migrant who was told to just get on a plane in San Antonio. He wants to go to school and thought he was coming here to work. And on Twitter, you have footage of them talking to this guy and he's outside like a yuppie market in Martha's Vineyard, you know, beautiful, you know, clabbered with wainscoting. And um, he wants to go to school and thought he was coming here to work, but instead he's gotten to Martha's Vineyard where he is getting to, you know, lounge out in the sun, sleep somewhere, get, you know, get free food and all of that. Um, and as our friend Jim Treacher <clears throat> points out in his tweet, that poor man, look at that squalor. So are we actually being asked to feel sorry? Yes. To feel sorry for people who have been taken from a place where they would have been in some kind of outdoor camp uh, in 100 degree heat to Martha's Vineyard, where they're being uh, nicely taken care of because, you know, they want to go to school and 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 do work. Uh, I am so profoundly shocked by the degree to which the online left has set themselves on fire over this thing. And in so doing, are making every argument against uh, open border policies, lax border control policies that Republicans have been making for years to the sound of silence. I have another great quote for you. Karine Jean-Pierre, White House press secretary, who said of the Venezuelan migrants, 50, grand total of 50 Venezuelan migrants, who were flown to this island off the coast of Massachusetts, uh, that Martha's Vineyard is, quote, a cruel and inhumane way to treat people who are fleeing communism. Very cruel for communist refugees to find themselves in Martha's Vineyard. Hey, listen, when I go to Martha's Vineyard, I'm fleeing the communism of New York City. So I I, I don't know, you know. Can Can I throw out another number? Because this is one that that uh, in June of this summer should have shocked and horrified the press corps a little more than it did. And that's the number 53, 53 migrants who died in the back of a truck being smuggled near San Antonio to try to get into this country, showing once again that the the extremely deleterious open border policy the Biden administration has been pursuing since he took office is leading to actual deaths. Another number, 8,000. That is the number of daily encounters that Border Patrol in the Southwest is having with illegal migrants every day. It's the highest number ever recorded. And then you have, last week, the vice president, who's some sort of borders are evidently, telling national media that the border is secure. It's a lie. We are being lied to by an administration that is failing to do its job to secure our border. And as a result, people are dying. And what are the media and the elite, as Noah said, the elite on Twitter focused on? These these poor, innocent victims in Martha's Vineyard. The, the line from from the left, almost to a man and woman, is that this is cruel and inhumane. Ron DeSantis's repulsive Martha Vineyard stunt. Chris Hayes saying the idea of dumping these helpless people in buses and trekking them off to New York and Washington is in Chicago is cruel and inhumane. That's Dick Durbin. I'm sorry. Deeply sick and dehumanizing to fling human beings somewhere vindictively. Chris Hayes have. Have they not read a single story on this? It's not like these people aren't talking to reporters. These migrants are thrilled. I have yet to see one person who says, as this New York state senator said, these people have been kidnapped. They're thrilled. They're extremely grateful to these Republican governors who have sent them out into the hinterlands to go where they wanted to go, to major urban centers, and paid their freight. And they're telling reporters that they're, they couldn't be more grateful for the also, treatment they've if received. If it's inhumane, the Biden administration is also inhumane. It has been shuttling migrants from the border into places like Westchester, New York, on evening secret evening flights that land at two in the morning. They have been doing this for over a year. This is this is the policy of this administration. Lastly, there's this very clever argument making its way around the online left, and they'll continue to make it because they only talk to each other and have no idea what other people think of themselves. Um, It is the idea that this is the rough equivalent of reverse freedom rides. 
they've drug up this episode from the past in which uh, segregationists would would ship relocate U.S. citizens northward to communicate, you know, the abject state of the African-American population in this country, really racist stuff. So in this metaphor, are African-Americans the equivalent of illegal migrants in this country, or is it the other way around? What are Hispanic Americans to think of this metaphor? Uh, it is incredibly insulting. Only the vantage of the faculty lounge could obscure how obviously insulting it is to compare the relocation of U.S. citizens with the transfer of custody of non-citizens. Um, you know, so 50 people, you know, so there are, I don't know, a couple thousand people came to New York, 50 people to Martha's Vineyard, right? The Border Patrol last year um, recorded uh, that there were uh, 1.6 million encounters with uh, migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border without, you know, a visa or whatever, without authorization. One point, uh, 1.73 million when interactions at ports of entry are included. Um, so uh, some of those are people who come three or four times in the course of a year. So we can say it's probably not a million six. It's like closer to a million or something like that. That's a million people. Now, um, what's different about, and some of them are coming in in very dangerous ways, and some of them are not coming in in dangerous ways. They come in and they they seek to be apprehended. They seek to be apprehended so they can, because uh, they have been schooled to request asylum. Because the minute they say they are seeking asylum, they enter into a different legal category in which they are required to get some form of due process rather than crossing the border, being apprehended by, you know, at the Rio Grande, somehow one, an individual person, some of them are coming as families and somebody comes in, you just direct them back across the border um, because they haven't requested asylum. Uh, this is a lot of people and they're coming in mostly in Texas and Texas is a very big state second most populous state in the country but um it doesn't matter you know it, so a couple thousand end up in new york and there's a hysterical shit fit it's the only reason <clears throat> the mainstream is paying any attention to them at all you right. know if That's it's just right. a million a, a year right. elsewhere who cares they're they're focused on other things yeah. Now, New York, in Martha's the way, Vineyard, they actually pay attention to the larger crisis. Well, and no, I just yeah, want to add ahead. one other thing about the cruel, the the, the rhetoric uh, over the last 48 hours about how cruel this is and, and how Republicans, I think Jonathan Chait had a ridiculous tweet where he said, you know, I guess Republicans are going to be shocked to see how welcoming and helpful that the, the Martha's Vineyard folks are to these migrants. I guess they expected them to treat them like Republicans. So I'm like, Republicans in Texas are the only people dealing with thousands of these folks on a daily basis. They are sheltering them. They are feeding them. They are trying to process them. And they are overwhelmed with the task. That, that's not cruelty. That's a lack of governance on the part of administrations. And yes, Trump's Biden inherited plenty of problems at the border from Trump. I'm not trying to to pretend this just uh, grew from Biden alone, but Biden is the one who's encouraged greater uh, illegal crossing at the border. This, That's just fact. Yeah, the online right did like go after Martha's Vineyard, especially its officials, for not wanting these migrants here to all 50 of them. And yeah, it's a tiny island that has you know housing troubles, but also the population turned out in droves and had a very robust charitable response to this event. They don't deserve to be crapped on, unlike Chicago, for example, which packed all these exactly. migrants onto a bus and shipped them to a Republican suburb. So much for the sanctuary. All these cities compare, complaining about this very gentle pressure that Republicans are applying to the sanctuary city model, suggesting the sanctuary city model isn't very robust. It's not a viable model. If this is all it takes for you to abandon it, then it wasn't a real thing in the first place. Look, it's not as though America's cities haven't dealt with waves of illegal immigration before. New York City alone, uh, you know, in in really in the last third of the 20th century, had 750,000 illegal Dominican immigrants living within New York City. Now, was it before happens, or after the housing as a human right thing that the city now must do? 
Oh, it was before, but but here's the the key thing, which is that's like, why the city's falling apart now, as far as this particular yeah. bit of pressure. They're already yes. overstressed. But why are they but, overstressed? But that's not why they're over. They're over. Yeah, they're overstressed. They're overstressed because there is a significant migrant population in New York City, just like every city. Right. No, but the the central point here is that when when they came, um, uh, they're there was work for them. There was work for them. They had places to live. They had families that took them in, all of that. This is, we're in a different set of circumstances here because um, this is a new kind of migrate. The stuff that we've seen really since in the second half of the 2010s constitutes a new form of migration. You have these people coming up, not out of Mexico, young single men coming up from Mexico where there's no economic opportunity to find work in the United States, right? That was who an illegal immigrant was from 1950 to 2000. You have people who are fleeing Venezuela, El Salvador, you know, Honduras, uh, other places where uh, they are, they feel under threat, they're at risk, uh, places are uh, falling apart. And they've gotten, they've gotten folk news that, you know, just get across the border, ask for asylum, and you can stay in the United States, and at least your kids aren't, you know, won't be, won't turn into gang members or get some killed of the, in, in Some school. of them interviewed actually in front of the vice president's mansion this week said exactly that. They said, yes, that's what we hear. We hear, we heard the border yeah, is open. Here, the border is open. So just, you know, and people are walking from Venezuela. They're walking from Venezuela through El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Honduras, Guatemala, up through Mexico and walking across the border. It takes them six months. You know, I mean, they're not, they're, this and they all is, say it's a, such a harrowing yeah. trip that when they get here, it's, pro, it's a profound relief. They're treated very well comparatively to the to the trail of tears they were just on. Yeah. And then they get a, a free bus ticket to Chicago. Or right. well, like if you if you don't get the free bus ticket, you end up dumped at a bu- Greyhound bus station in El Paso, which is where a thousand of sure. them were dumped just this past week. They just right, left tra- there or a transfer yeah. facility. I right. mean, worst case scenario, you could find yourself under an overpass for a couple of days. I mean. So in 2017, 2018, when when everybody started going crazy about the kids in cages, right? The kids in cages, Jacob Soboroff. I mean, this is you know, it's the covering it like he was covering the Warsaw Ghetto or the Holocaust or something like that. And there were all these pictures of the kids in cages, right? From so, the Obama administration, let's from, recall. But that was my point, right? <laughs> yeah. So the cages, which aren't cages, it's because they don't have air conditioned facilities. And so they they're putting them there since they have to house them somewhere and not have them run away. They're placed in circumstances in which they can get air and not kept in a prison. But so cages was a very you know effective way of uh, talking about this, but that we were seeing images from a Democratic administration's time more often than we were seeing them from the present day. And they were complying with the law, the law being the Flores decision and the precedent around it that you have to process these adults and you can't process yeah. children the same way and this is just the law look right. if congress wants to revisit this no one's stopping them right so right now we have this happening simultaneously right which is oh my god desantis said abbott is sending people to new york and you know they're just they're 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 you know they're trafficking them inside the united states while simultaneously the biden administration is trafficking these people into the United States. Biden's not blamed. Republicans are blamed. First of all, there's no reason to blame them. It is a perfectly rational way to handle this because this is a federal and not a state responsibility. Texas should not be responsible for the for the for the illegal immigration problem. This is a this is a federal government responsibility federal government policy federal government intervention federal government um enforcement so how do you think how do you think the liberal hysteria ultimately plays with the american people um i i I only pose it as a question because dumb ideas and lies and bad analogies don't necessarily fail to to land you know, um, especially when they're emotional and 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 
that's obviously what they're going for here. Well, if we go back to the New York Times poll, uh, Republicans still score higher on some social issues, including illegal immigration. I think like two to one or something like that. Can I, I think just this also, is so this response is so distasteful. It's it's so so parochial uh, in the, a way that I, they don't they clearly don't recognize it as the, the tone of this of their response here is though there's something very inhumane and cruel is being done to these people, which does not comport with anybody else's experience, doesn't doesn't comport with the evidence of your own eyes. And then to say, especially this freak out over Martha's Vineyard in particular, is just so it, it smacks of of a of a culture of elitism and classism that is really distasteful and and illustrates who the Democratic voter is today, which is very affluent, which is very white, very highly educated, and is very unrepresentative of the American electorate broadly. And the and border town, the border easily... towns where they're putting them are are majority Hispanic. Um, so this idea that, you know, and Martha's Vineyard being one of the whitest places on earth, but, uh, but we should also uh, note that when the border crisis in the early Biden administration was happening, and we had, as, as Noah alluded to earlier, these overpasses where they were hurting a bunch of people just to contain them for a while, there was a lot of effort by the Biden administration to prevent reporters from actually reporting on what was going on. And it's important to remember that when we try to think about what the American people, both what they know informationally about what's going on at the border and what they feel about emotionally about what's going on at the border. The mainstream media has utterly failed to do its job under the Biden administration to report on what's happening here. They have they immediately rolled over when they told when they were told they couldn't film it, when they couldn't interview certain people. They were they were pushed away and they immediately accepted that. Like, okay, no problem. Whereas during the during the Trump administration, every single, you know, AOC type wannabe ran to the fences crying and getting their photo op. So there there is a real lack of of genuinely objective reporting about what's going on down there as well that will affect people's opinion it's, it's so hard to get immigration to stick as a as a national issue it, it rises as you said in 2018 like it takes a real event this wasn't an event this was the stunt republicans engineered a political stunt here and it wouldn't have been as successful as it is day two of an immigration discussion in an in a, in the fall of an election year where democrats hold all power there's no way that this would have the traction it has, but for the apoplectic reaction that we've seen from Democrats. Where's Jacob Soboroff? Jacob Soboroff, calling on Jacob Soboroff, author of Separated, an American Tragedy, Inside an American Tragedy. Where are you? Where are you? Gee, maybe it's inconvenient for you to be reporting on the Biden administration. Tough noogies, buddy. You were called out for your hypocrisy. Um, I think it is also. Look, Republicans win on illegal immigration by a 14-point margin in the in the New York Times poll. This is an issue that is badly covered. And so we don't know. This is among the many reasons not to be skeptical of the poll, what the polling is showing per se, but to say that we don't know what's going to be animating people's emotions as they approach election day. We don't know where this issue will be on election day. In 2018, it did not help Trump. Trump thought this was going to be the deus ex machina that was going to prevent the, 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 the Democratic surge in 2018, the caravans. It didn't work. But as a, generally speaking, as an issue, this is better. It plays better for Republicans than Democrats. Democrats are the ones who are making this an issue. I think that is Noah's point here. The stunt is to the stunt is to create conversation around illegal immigration. How that benefits Democrats, I have no idea. We understand how it benefits them. I mean, they think but, it makes them look compassionate right now. They I think they honestly believe that they look like compassionate, welcoming Americans. And those evil fascist MAGA Republicans are just, you know, they don't care about, you know, that I I honestly think that they feel that this makes them look good. Right. And and and, and you know, it does. Again, we're in the, the world of two public opinions. It makes them look good among the people whom they probably don't really need to look good with, you know, right. all the time, because what they need to do is to is to solidify people who are have misgivings about them. And so in that sense, this really could be an incredibly brilliant, brilliant political play. At the very least, it's it, it it's negligible. At the very least, it won't it really won't hurt Republicans 
or DeSantis or Abbott, and it may help them. And, and I got may... another one that I wanted to bring to this. Okay, discussion. Please, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you. Yeah. Uh, but I sent this on our text thread. Guys, you you really just need to pay a premium to be on this text thread. Um, this is from a gentleman I'm not familiar with, but he has a blue check mark. His name is Adam Park Jimeno. He's a Democratic strategist and consultant. Quote, Ron DeSantis sent his own videographer to film his dangerous and illegal actions today. That footage will ultimately end up as evidence. So a new resistance has just dropped. <laughs> Yeah, we were joking. It's like it's resistance Mad Libs. You just take out wherever you had put Trump in a sentence and now you put DeSantis. It's very, it's very seamless. <laughs> They're losing their minds. They've lost their minds. This is so offensive to anybody who isn't within this very white, affluent, educated coalition th that they don't even recognize it is a sign of profound cosseting. Listen, I just want to finish by saying I welcome Corrine Jean-Pierre into the ranks of the anti-communists. Why don't we go there? Why don't we get a little positive? Corinne Jean-Pierre's deep humanitarian commitment to anti-communism by saying that this is a cruel and inhumane way to deal with people who are fleeing communism. I mean, I, I'm deeply, deeply moved. And I, you know, I, I hope that um, we can discover that in the past, Corinne Jean-Pierre felt the same way about Elian Gonzalez. So uh, with that in mind, uh, I, I, uh, I uh, hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Uh, I will not be uh, on the podcast Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So my friends here will... Uh, no, I will be on on Monday. Sorry. We're going to actually record the podcast Sunday night because I got to go away Monday and Tuesday. So forget what I just said. It's Maybe another we'll commentary after dark. Just just a little... Oh, it'll be a commentary after dark. And yes. what's more, a commentary after House of the Dragon. So I will be making many references to dragons and incest uh, because they will be on my mind. Um, so until then, <laughs> for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camel burning.